Amen. Good morning, church. How are we doing? All right. Has you, have you been blessed by the Psalm series? Has it been good for you? Okay. So I'm just, we're always thinking about, um, and I'm already, I'm already thinking about the next year and a half of sermons. And it's like, hey, is this something we want to, you think I'm joking. <laughs> I legitimately plan out for over a year what we're going to be preaching. And I kind of want to know, like, is this something that's beneficial? Is this something that we should be doing on a regular basis during the summer? Is this helpful? So those are things that I think about. Um, if you're new, welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, my name is Simon. I'm one of the pastors. Grateful that you came to join us to be a part of it. Uh, if you would like to talk more after about who we are and, and what we do here, we'd love to have that conversation. But uh, we have been in the series of Psalms, but next week we move back into the uh, series in Acts. We went about one-third into Acts, took a little hiatus. Now we're going to jump back in. And you guys love the first John uh, Journal Bible so much that we went ahead and got the Acts version of it as well. So if you are a journaler, a note taker, someone who likes to not scribble in their fancy Bible, likes to scribble in other Bibles, have we got the gift for you. They're in the back. Please feel free to grab one of those. Um, my hope would be is that we could look back after 12 years and you'd have like this giant stack of all these books of the Bible that we went through. Like that's just me dreaming. But like it'd be great to go, oh, when I go to studies, I just grab my Acts study and I can, I can do that. So please be blessed by that if that's um, something that you would want. So I bring up all the time that I lived in the desert. I lived in Palmdale. Um, and I say that as though I got freedom from there. And so it's, it's nice to be out of the desert. It's nice to not be in the desert. It's nice to visit the desert. But when I was there, I did a lot of camping, a lot of hiking and mountaineering, and not necessarily in the desert, but the Sierra Nevada mountain range was very close. It's just a couple hours away. And so I would go out there on a pretty regular basis with my friends, and I did something called mountaineering. Uh, mountaineering is just like hiking, but a little bit more. It's just really trying to get to the peaks and the tops of mountains, sometimes with ropes, sometimes with crampons or ice axes or whatever it takes to get up to those spots. And I would do that with some different individuals trying to hit 14,000 foot peaks. So that's what I would do. And as I went to one range, there's a place I'd go to. Mount Whitney was kind of the mountain of choice that I would go to. And I think we have a picture of it right there that you can take a look at. Um, this is Mount Whitney. As you come into the portal, the parking lot, that's what you see. The tall one is Mount Whitney. The two little ones that left are called the sisters, or what they're called. And so um, been out there a bunch. Now there's three ways to get to the top. And uh, they each have a different value. They each have a different reason. There's one called the John Muir Trail. It's 211 miles. And you can start in Yosemite. And you can take that hike all the way to the top of Mount Whitney. It takes about two weeks to get there. And the problem is, is that you don't get to see the front. You only see the back of it because you're coming in from the backside. Um, beautiful hike. I haven't done that one yet. I haven't found uh, two spare weeks to kind of carve out yet. So when I do, I'll let you know. The other one is probably the most popular one that we know of called uh, the Hiker's Trail. The Hiker's Trail is where most people come. It's a very uh, crowded trail. Uh, it's not as strenuous or difficult, though it is 22 miles to get to the top. A lot of people do it in one day, one shot there and back. Uh, multiple people do it over two nights, and you got to get permits and stuff. It's a little bit crowded, but the biggest problem that I have with the Hiker's Trail isn't the crowds. It's not the switchbacks, which I don't like at all. It's that you only see this view once in the parking lot. So you'll pull in the parking lot, there's where we're going. And then you never see that mountain again. Because you go off to the left. And then you go up through some mountain range. You go on some other ridges. And you might get a small peak from an angle at one point, but only lasts like 15 minutes. And then it's gone. 
and then you come up the backside of the mountain because it's easier. Now, my personal favorite is called the Mountaineer's Trail. The Mountaineer's Trail, uh, and I've done this uh, hike a couple of times. I think I've got some pictures of some buddies that I've gone with. Uh, so the, the black and white picture is the one where uh, we thought we were going to die. Different story. Not hiking with that guy anymore. And then the other one is my son. That's Hawkins. He's 11 years old in that picture. And he did that hike with me. Uh, there is nothing more satisfying than taking your 11-year-old son and passing college students all the way up. And they go, how old is that kid? How, how old is that kid? 11. What are you, 21? Have fun. And so there's nothing that makes me more prouder than my son defeating college students at a, such a young age. But that is the view from the top. Uh, but the Mountaineers Trail is great. It's actually shortest trail out of all of them. It's eight miles. Straight up. <laughs> there is no down until you're leaving the mountain on that particular trail. So it's super strenuous. There's barely anyone out there. But the thing that makes it so good, if you go to the next slide, this is pretty much the view you have the entire way up. For the entire hike, you see this. It is unbelievably gorgeous when you get out there the second morning at Iceberg Lake, which is named that because, well, it's frozen, and you see the sun hit the mountains. There is nothing more beautiful than seeing that, even knowing that you still have a five-hour climb up the ice chute to get to the top. But I love when I'm on that trail because I'm seeing the goal, I'm seeing the destination, I'm seeing where I'm going. I understand that this is what's putting gas in the tank as I go forward. Like when you don't want to keep walking, at least you know where you're going. It's dangerous. You know it's dangerous, but you know that the payoff is worth where you're going to go. Now, why do I bring up these hikes and these different trails and seeing the mountain range? Because we're entering into this last psalm, and it's part of, uh, again, there's five books that we've talked about in the book of Psalms that compile the one book, all right? Now, this group of psalms that we're in today is called the Songs of Ascent, and it is going to be Psalm 120 through 134. It's 15 songs that are meant to be sung by these travelers on a journey. Now, the question is, what journey is it, and who are the travelers? Well, the travelers we know are the Israelites. We know that much. But the journey, there's a couple of different views and a couple of different opinions on who was singing this and when they were. So I'm going to kind of, I always like to lay out the options so you can hear what they are, and I'll just tell you where I land, and you can do what you want with that. But the first one is this, is that it was men and women from Israel that were returning to Jerusalem from the exile in Babylon, and they would sing these songs on their way back, and that's where they were going. So they would sing these songs, and these were songs, and there's, again, the songs are compiled from all over. I think David wrote two of the songs of ascent that we have in here, and so that could be one. There's scholars that hold to that one. The other one was one that I found this week that I found very intriguing, very interesting. Uh, it's from the Levitical priest. So if you know anything about the temple and how it's constructed and what it looks like, you've got these three courts. You've got the, the, the area where the Gentiles were, right? So they couldn't go into the temple because they weren't Jewish. And they could worship from the outside. And then you had the next section was the courtyard of the women. It's where the Israelite women could go and they could worship and they could go there as well. Well, there's another courtyard that they would go into, and that would be where they would call it, uh, it was like the men's courtyard, but it was more the Israelite courtyard, and it's where the sacrifices and all the different altars and everything were at. It's where the priest would go to do the offerings and the sacrifice. Now, I didn't know this until this week, but there's a set of stairs 
that go from the woman's courtyard up to the men's courtyard. Guess how many stairs there are? Fifteen. <laughs> There's fifteen steps. And so what would happen, and we can still see this today, that the Levitical priests, they would come, and, and if they were there, they'd go, this is how you would go up it, and you know, not anymore, but um, they'd go on the step and they'd sing one psalm, they'd go up the next one, they'd sing the next one, they'd keep going up all the way that they would sing all of those songs as they would go to do that. And so that is one as well. This seems to be instated a bit farther out, and so there's a lot of controversy if that's really what it is or what it isn't. But the third one where most scholars land, as far as the practical application of what it looks like for the people of Israel, would be the pilgrimage of the Jewish people made three times a year to Jerusalem to worship God for the three different festivals. And that's where a lot of people kind of land. And so there are three festivals that they would talk about. And so I'm going to kind of talk about those so you just understand the basic idea of what they are. But these are the three times that all the, the Jewish men and women would come and they would worship the Lord. So one is Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So what they're celebrating here is they're celebrating their being freed from slavery from the Egyptians. That would take place during the springtime. So if you know the story uh, of how God freed his people, that they got free, he says, you know, let my people go, that the angel of death came over, and those that took the blood of the lamb and painted it on their doorpost, the angel of death would pass over that home and they would be spared, right? Okay, so they give thanks to the Lord that freed them from bondage, freed them from slavery. The second is the Feast of Weeks, which is celebrating the Ten Commandments, and the spiritual and physical blessings that came from God, that God gave them these commandments, that he made this covenant with them on Mount Sinai. This is what they remember God and who he is and what he did and the covenant that he made with them. The third one is known as the, uh, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents, uh, which celebrates God's provision for the 40 years in the wilderness and it also took place at harvest time. So if you know the story of the Israelites, they wandered the desert for 40 years, Okay. During that time, they were very nomadic, and they would move around, and they lived in tents. If you go during that festival still today, there'll be tents all over, and they'll be kind of like living out of their house and living in those tents as a way to remember the provision of God for those 40 years as they wandered the desert, and he got them through that situation. So they would make this journey, and it didn't take just an hour or two. It wasn't like hopping in a car. It could take, you know, multiple days, depending on how far away that you lived from, uh, from Jerusalem. Uh, it was by foot, it was long, it was hard. And what we see is, in a sense, the Israelites, they were pilgrims. Not with the hats and the turkey and the boat, that's not what we're talking about, but their pilgrimage to go to where they go to worship God, where they go to remember the God that loves, cares, provides, and protects for them. So they would go these three different times throughout the year to always keep in the front of their head that this is who God is, this is who we are, that we are his children, that he is our father, and we worship him. And each one of these songs that they would sing along on that journey would be a characteristic, an attribute, a character trait of God. Now, I went through all 15 and I listed them off and I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that big list. But to get the big idea, it's that we would have these psalms and, the, and the kind of the big idea would be like the God who delivers, the God who's the helper, God's protection, God's security, God's blessing, the God who brings unity, the eternal God, the powerful God, the God of mercy. That's kind of what they would do. And they kept singing these things along the way to remind them of the God that they were going to go and worship. And this is what they would say, that he was worthy and worth all worship. He was worthy and worth the journey to go and to worship him. 
So as these songs are sung, I, I think about the people at our church. Um, we're talking about a difficult journey, a hard journey, something that's strenuous, fear, the unknown in those areas. I don't know where everybody's at in this room. Here, here's something I do know. Either you've gone through a really hard time, you're going through a really hard time, or just wait for it, you will be going through a hard time. There's one thing that we're guaranteed is that hard times are going to come. And as I thought about that this week, I was talking with, um, so I write off-site on Tuesdays, and usually that's when all my crazy ideas come to me, and so now that I have a great team, I go, hey, I got a crazy idea, can you make this happen by Sunday? And they're like, ugh, Simon, what is wrong with you? And then they pull it off, and I'm like, our guys are awesome. And so this week I said, well, based on these songs, based on this idea of a hard journey, based on this idea that we have people all in different walks of life that are going through different circumstances and I don't know where they are, should we not provide something to help them if they are in that situation? Or can we give them something that would prepare them for the situation that inevitably is going to come? So they would be prepared when the difficulty does come. So we did a couple of things. Um, there are those that love technology and that are very tech savvy. Their phone is their second computer. And you have a QR code in the back of your seat. If you were to click on this with your phone and then tap, and I, see, I've already lost some of you already. I've already said too many things. You're like, nope, I'm already out. But if you click on that, it'll give you a list of all the ways that you can connect on app, website, uh, you know that David makes a worship list that you can listen to on Spotify that's connected there? You can get uh, Instagram and Facebook. And what we did is we provided on there a study. And that study is uh, 15, the 15 songs of ascent that you can study for 15 days. And that you would take that and every day you would read God's word and it only asks you three questions. And the questions are to meant for you to, what is God saying to me? How does this apply to my life? Because I don't know where you are. And I don't want to give you my hope. I don't want to give you my encouraging words. I want to give you God's encouraging words. Now, we say this all the time. We love the second service. We love you so much that the guys put together a non-electronic version. I want to say this. They are limited because these guys are doing this on the weekend. And I did not offer this at the first service at all. You guys are special. You guys are important. And because we know that not everyone wants to use their technology, we have offered this. Um, uh, do we have those in the back? Is that where they're at? So they are in the back. If you'd like to grab one, uh, please do. Um, we would love for you to use that. We'd love for you to grow in that. And it just, it's just every day. It's laid out really well. They did a fantastic job with it. And I just want to, A, thank them for the hard work that they do. Yeah. And let you know how much that we love you, that we want to give you God's word for everything in your life. Okay, with that, we should probably read the Bible, yeah? Let's, let's get into God's word, because that's the best thing we could do. Uh, Psalm 121, all we're going to do today is this. I'm going to read through it, we're going to break down the, the four different sections, and um, we're going to apply it to how this works in our life with Jesus, and then we're going to take communion and worship some more, okay? So that's the, that's the game plan moving forward. I lift my eyes up to the hills... From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. 
The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this psalm. I thank you how you've just used it to encourage me this week. As I think about the God of the universe who keeps us and holds us, protects us, I can't help but be humbled by that. As I think about my life and I think about what you've saved me from and what you've saved me to, I can't help but have gratitude. Thank you for being powerful. Thank you for being the one who goes before us. My Lord, as I ask, as we go through this journey of life with all the ups and the downs that it brings, that we can know where our eyes are fixed, that if there are areas that you want to encourage us, that we would leave encouraged. If there are areas that we need to be pressed into to maybe confess some things and some uh, areas of our life where we're not trusting you, that you would allow us to do that. But ultimately, I ask that you would be praised and lifted high. Speak through me. Do not let me say anything that is not from you. And may you use me for your will. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So as we start off this particular section, I'm just going to kind of take it two verses at a time as we kind of chunk through. Um, it starts off where the singer is kind of having this internal slash external dialogue with himself in this song. He says, I lift my eyes up to hill. Where does my help come from? That's how that starts off. Um, the hill represents something. It can be seen in two different ways. There's kind of a negative and a positive that, that flow out of that. And um, honestly, if I'm going to lay my cards on the table and tell you what I believe about it, I believe that the writer is being extremely clever in how he's writing, and he's actually talking to both sides of that coin, and I'll kind of explain in a second. So uh, a lot would look at and say the hills represent the long, hard journey that must be traveled. Okay, so if you think about traveling on a journey like this, a traveling by foot, bringing all of your supplies, all your provisions, all your family, uh, there's, it's just full of fear. And that fear comes from the unknown. You don't know what's going to happen. When you leave the confines of community, of your home, of where you live, of your dwelling place with locks and doors and windows that keep out the boogeyman, like you go out there, you are exposing yourself to who knows what. You don't know if that's going to be a trip where someone gets sick, someone gets hurt, someone gets injured. You don't know if there's wild animals out there that are going to attack. You don't know if there are robbers or bandits that are waiting and lurking because the reality is, is they would. Hence the reason why a lot of people would travel in large groups together to go there so they would have more numbers in force. So there's that way of looking at it. The hill, they look at, they say, oh, look at all the hills. There's a long way to go. It's going to be a difficult journey. Um, I'm potentially nervous and scared. The other way to look at us as they were coming closer to Jerusalem, they would see the Temple Mount. They would see the mountain which the temple sits upon the symbol of the covenant and the relationship with God, the place where God would dwell, the place where sins would be forgiven, the sacrifices would be offered. They would see that. It would bring encouragement and confidence and hope that their God is not abandoned, that their God loves them, and their God is there for them. So as they would see that, they'd go, oh, yes, that is the Lord who loves me and cares for me. So when they lift their eyes up and they see the hills and the trouble, where does their help come from? It comes from the Lord. When they look upon the holy mount and they see where they would go to have relationship with the Lord, where does their help come from? It comes from the Lord. And then he says, the one who made the heavens and the earth. Why would he say that? 
But what he's doing here is, and I, and I love this, and I think this is something that we can learn from, is that he's reminding himself about how powerful God is. He's reminding himself that this is the God who started making everything out of nothing and only using his words. Let there be light. Let there be sea. Let there be mountains. Let there be stars. Let there be moon. Let there be animals. Like, he just spoke. Like, I want this. I speak it. It happens. That's who God is. So he's reminding himself of this God, this all-powerful God that can do anything that he desires. Because he's realizing that though there may be dangers that come down that path, that he is the one that created the path that they walk on, the mountains that they go through, the sky that is above them. And if he is there, then no one can overpower the all-powerful. See, we are forgetful people, aren't we? We just forget stuff all the time. It's, it's, I mean, if you have teenagers say, well, I lost my clothes. Where'd you put them? I don't know. How about in that pile on the floor? Oh, yeah, that's where they are. Like, we just forget stuff all the time. But we have to be reminded. And so what you have is, like, at times, we need to just talk to ourselves. Don't forget. God is powerful. God is in control. God loves me. God cares for me. And so we need to tell ourselves that all the time. It's good for us to pause on this kind of larger issue, which is this. Help does not come from our own efforts. Help does not come from the efforts of others, but help comes from God. And that's what the psalmist is saying. My help comes from the Lord. Any help that would come from someone else is because the Lord has allowed them to give you the help that you need. So he's saying, ultimately, all help comes from you, the all-powerful. And then in the next six verses, there's going to be a big idea that kind of keeps popping up. Now, when I read the Bible, I always try to go like, I'm looking for patterns, I'm looking for things that look similar, I'm looking for things that connect all the time. And so, as I'm reading this, there was a word that kept coming up over and over and over and over again in these next six verses. And the word is keep. To maintain in safety from injury or danger. This word is used six times in eight verses. Any time a writer starts to use a word in repetition, you have to stop and go, why is this word being used? And the more they use it, the more they're trying to make the point. He's going to keep turning this, like, it's like looking at a diamond from different angles. Same diamond, but every time he turns it, it looks different because it's a different angle to see the beauty of that diamond. And he's saying, this God who keeps us, I want to look at all these different areas that he keeps us, he holds us, that we are his, that no one's going to pry us out of his hand, that he is the one that's going to keep us safe from injury, from danger. That's who this God is, that we are kept by God. And the psalmist wants to know, you are kept by God. He holds you. He keeps you. You do not have to fear. And then what happens from verses 1 and 2 to 3 and 4, there's something, there's a, there's a change that takes place. It goes from the first person to the second person. And what we see is that we are introducing someone else singing. Now, there's some different thoughts on how this would happen. Some would say, as the pilgrims were coming up to go to Jerusalem, they would be singing this section, and then the priest would sing back this section to them. It may or may not. There's, it's hard to know. It sounds pretty. It sounds neat. Is it real? I'm not sure. But the idea is this, that there is someone else singing to them like a duet. 
you maybe know some of your favorite duets, Sonny and Cher, whoever it may be. I, I'm just trying to hit the audience that I can. Maybe you remember those duets, and they would sing one part, and then they'd sing the next part, and they'd go back and forth, and they'd kind of be having a conversation, right? Well, that's sort of what's going on in this. But this singer is pondering what has been said by the first singer, and that singer is now going to bring encouragement to that person as they think out loud, like, I look to the hills, where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. So they're talking to themselves like, yes, let me encourage you some more. And what we see is there's encouragement that is coming from this particular thing. Now, I say all the time that we were not meant to do life alone. We're not. We're not, uh, Christians aren't meant to be lone rangers. That's not who we're meant to be. We're meant to be in community. We are saved into community. If you look at the Bible and how it functions, constantly in community all the time. You know when, you, when they weren't in community, it was usually like a punishment? It was like a bad thing? Like, oh, you're outside of community. That's not good for you. We're meant to be in community. If we're made in the image of God, if he's in perfect community in the Trinity within himself, that there's a part of that of who we are. It's built into our very DNA and our structure. And so as we think about that, that we need to be encouraged. You know why we're always pushing life groups? Because you go to a life group and you share, hopefully, your life. How are you doing? How has your week been? Are you doing all right? I heard you were sick. I heard you weren't doing well. Hey, is there anything I can do to help you? When people walk in, I'm always asking, like, how are you doing? And someone says, oh, I'm terrible. Well, good luck. I don't just say that. No, I'm not. I hope that works out for you. No, I'm, what's going on? Hey, let's talk. Hey, can I help you? But in those moments that, in those life groups, in those one-on-one connections, that we have an opportunity to bring encouragement to encourage them in their walk and where they're going and what they're doing. But it's specific encouragement that's brought. It's not like, well, if you do these 10 steps, it'll be better. If you just follow my great advice, it'll be good. If you put these things into practice, it'll be great. No, what is the encouragement that the singer gives? Truth about God. And so I was thinking about this week and I thought, ah, I wonder when's the last time any of us have encouraged somebody, but not in the, oh, I hope it goes well, happy, no, when was the last time you encouraged somebody with God's word, with God's scripture, with truth about who the God of the universe is, of, of what Jesus had done in their life? Because that's where real encouragement comes from. It's not from me. It's not from my thoughts and ideas. That's why I'm always in the Bible. Like, I want you to have God's word to encourage you, not Simon's words to encourage you. And I challenge you this week, if you find someone this week, see how they're doing, no matter how big or how small of a difficult thing they're going through or how, whatever it may be, just bring them truth of God to encourage them, that they would hear the God that loves, protects, cares for, has gone to great lengths to save them, to purchase them from death. Let them know that they are, they are special to God. That's the encouragement we need to bring. Then he says, He will not let your foot be moved, meaning that we would have stability, that we are soundly planted and not moving. Slipping or stumbling means disaster. If we were to think about going back to the the, the opening kind of thing that I shared about hiking, there is something really important about having a sure footing. We wear really good shoes that have really good traction because if you don't, it only takes one little offset You roll an ankle, you break a leg, you take a stumble, you take a trip, and when you're up high in high altitude, guess what? You can fall. And then think about all the mistakes you made all the way down. See, when I would go hiking sometimes, it would rain. You know what's really 
not traction-y. That's not even a word, but you know what isn't? Wet granite. Wet granite's really slick. You can't grab anything. And I remember we would just be so much slower when we go in the mountains because like, if we don't have a sure footing, we're just not going to move forward. You have to be firmly planted. And that's what he's saying. God won't let your foot slip. And then he kind of takes it a step farther, pun intended, that how he's going to shift and say that God doesn't sleep, meaning this, you are never outside of his sight. Now, I'll, I'll just be honest and I'll share just my life and you can judge all you want, but I would ask that you please wouldn't. But raising kids is tough. It's difficult. It's not easy. They don't care about your sleep. They don't care about what your desires are. And so when they're sick, not feeling well, injured, they don't go, well, hey, could you book me in when you've gotten your rest in the morning to watch over me? No, middle of the night, you're up. And you're already not getting a lot of sleep. And so I remember at times, and maybe this has happened, maybe it hasn't, but maybe you're in that evening shift and you're watching that sick child, that injured child, and you want to make sure they're okay, you're checking the fever, you're making sure, and, and just maybe, I mean, I'm not saying it happened to me, but maybe you may have nodded off at one point in that shift. And then you wake up, and it's not a nice, how do you wake up? <gasps> They have a fever. Are they breathing? Are they awake? Are they okay? Are they in pain? It's that terrifying waking up like, why? Did I miss something? Did something happen that I could have prevented? Did it get worse? Could I, could I put a cold pack on? Could I make sure that they were more comfortable? Could I make sure they needed the food? Whatever it may be, you don't want to miss that. But not God. God's never felt that way. Because he doesn't sleep. He doesn't need rest like us. He's different than us. And he sees everything all the time. Verse 3 is going to keep moving with this idea of community and the idea of like God keeps you. So when he says that God keeps you, there's a personal connotation of that, right? That God is a personal God that has a relationship with you one-on-one. -on -one, that You have that. That he's not some far-off, distant God, uh, but he is a part of our lives. That he wants to be a part of our lives. He wants to engage us all the time. There's something super comforting about that. But at times, people take that to this extreme thought, and they'll say things like this. Well, I don't know why everyone's always on me about going to church. My relation with God is between me and God, and that's all it is. Just me and God. I don't need anybody else. And I got my thing, and I'm doing my thing. The only problem with that is the Bible. And the next verse says, he also says, he keeps who? Israel. What's he talking about? His family, his community, his people. That See, we're not just saved for ourselves. We're saved to something as well, that God has given this community to go out into a dark and broken world and to show them what it looks like when we are transformed by the power of God, empowered to live the life that we could, to show them who Jesus is and how God's community works together. That's why it's so grievous when we do these horrible things to each other in the church. Because we're like, well, you just look like the rest of the world. Say no. Like, some of you are like, well, I don't like family. Uh, can we just be honest? Can family be hard? Okay, I'm the only horrible person here. Good. So family can be hard. And at times, like, I just got to get away. And here's the thing, though, with family. It doesn't matter how far away you go. It doesn't matter how little you interact with them. They are still your family, whether you like it or not. And their actions affect your life. And your actions affect their life. 
It's amazing how many times when a family member gets sick and if they're able to track down whatever son, daughter, whoever and say, you just need to be aware that so-and-so is sick. They may not make it. And they come back because it's family. See, our lives are interconnected. Our actions are interconnected with each other that we're meant to live in this way that glorifies who God is by changing us into the people that he's called us to be. Then in 5 and 6, the Lord keeps us and is our shade. Long journeys are hard. Um, being out in the sun is difficult. Uh, I don't know what it is this week. It just feels like the sun has been meaner and angrier this week. I, I don't know why. It's been rough. Now, uh, Annette and I went out to, to paddleboard over at Dana Point in the harbor. We have a couple of inflatable paddle boards, and we go out there, and we'll paddle around. And um, my wife is, maybe you're like this, is the sunscreen Nazi. Like, you got to wear sunscreen. Put on sunscreen. you got to put on the sunscreen. Now, I may or may not have listened to her. And I may or may not have gotten a horrible sunburn this week. Because <laughs> you know what's not out in the water? Shade. <laughs> and so the sun beat me up. And you think about these individuals going on this long journey, hiking for days on end in the desert where there's no shade. And it beats you up. It, it, it will kill you ultimately if you stay exposed to it for that long. And what it's saying is that that God is that for us. He is our shade. He is our rest. He is our relief in those moments. And you're like, Simon, I can get on board with the sunshade thing. You lost me at moonshade. I don't get it. Like, is there some kind of new lunar UV that we're not aware of that suddenly we're all in trouble and now we got to put on like lotion at night? I'm not saying that and I hope to God we're not. But, there's two things from this if we were to look at like what's going on and why is he talking about the moon. The, the first one is just more of a basic concept of that God covers us and protects us night and day. Okay, so that's just kind of the big overarching idea that he covers us night and day. Now, I did read some stuff this week. I thought it was fascinating. And when I find fascinating things, I like to share fascinating things because it made me kind of think and dwell more on who God is. But it's the idea that a lot of the ancient world believed that the moon caused mental distress and emotional distress. So being in the moon had this thing. There was something connected to that. Like, oh, I'm out in the moon. It's, so you ever heard the term lunacy? That's where that comes from. That's why we have that term. So if that is what the, the singer is talking about, he's saying that God is going to keep us from the heat and the emotional exhaustion that comes from that journey. There's an emotional toll on a journey. I, I am fascinated by reading about the Navy SEALs. Their training is just insane. And they always talk about one thing. Your mind will quit before your body does. And if you can push past what your mind is telling you, you can make your body do things that you could never, ever imagine. And as we go through life on this journey, that we need to mentally be able to know that we can go through it. This God gives us the ability to actually do that. And then in verse 7 and 8, it kind of gets to the ending of this section that keeps building the idea that we will not fall, we will not stumble, that God does not turn his back on us, that he's not going to miss what's happening, that he protects us and shelters us from the danger. He's going to end with this idea that God will keep us from evil and keep our life. What does he mean here? Like, we know that we are in a fallen, broken world, right? Turn on the news, grab a paper, go on social media. It's, it's, it's a broken world. 
we, we see the effects of sin and evil in the world all the time. We see it from a global scale, and we see it from a personal scale. We watch what people do to each other, and you go, how could you do that? I, I look at my life, and I think of the things that I did in my life, and I go, that was just, there's no other word for it, just evil. This is wrong. It was sinful. It was unkind. It was unloving. We think about those. I, I, I look at that and go, God, how could you love someone like me? How, how, could you, how could you come down and die for me on the cross? I did not earn it. I didn't deserve it. I deserve everything that would be given to me. Yet your love and your kindness have saved me from evil. If you look at the word evil, it can also mean destruction, to be destroyed, or misfortune. It's got some meanings that are in there. And so if you start looking at how he pairs up the word evil with the ending, it's that God will keep you from being destroyed by others, and that's matched up with keeping life. Will there be difficulties? Yes. But will you be destroyed? No. See, we know that because of sin and evil, this world is a hard place to live. We know that it's hard to grow things. We know it's hard to work. We know it's hard to childbear. Those are all effects of sin and the evil of this world. But what we're seeing here is that it will not destroy you. The Lord will keep you in your coming and your going, meaning that the protection of the Lord follows the singer now and forever. That's what he's saying. So the question that we need to ask today is, what does this mean for me and how does this relate to Jesus? See, these pilgrims were on a journey. And their journey was to go and to worship God because they loved and trusted Him. He was worth going on the journey. I don't know if you know, but the Bible actually kind of considers us pilgrims, Christians, at times. It talks about some different ways that we're viewed and how we should view the world that we live in. In uh, John 15, 19, it says this, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So it tells us right off the bat that we are not of this world, that we are a new creation, that there's something different about where we came from. In 1 Peter 2.11, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That we are sojourners, that we're not from here. And then in Philippians, uh, Philippians 3.20 would say, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are not from here. This is not our home. That there is something more. And in a sense that we are also like those pilgrims. Because as we go through our journey, and the journey is the journey of life, from the cradle to the grave of where we're going. As we go through it, we, it can be full of fear, right? It can be full of danger. But as followers of Jesus, we are called to worship God with every fiber of our being. What we say, how we think, how we act, the deeds that we do, we are meant to worship God in everything. Um, I love that we hired a worship minister. I love that we hired David. But it's not just about music. We worship God all the time. Whether it's having good food and thanking God for the food, whether it's being in a good conversation with a friend, whether it's driving and seeing God's landscape, whether it's hearing God's word and going, yes, that is true, that's worshiping God, or whether it's singing. All of those things are worship, and our lives are meant to worship continually all the time. 
But you know what's interesting? As we go through this journey, like it said in John 15, 19, there is hostility for those that worship and live a life that brings glory and honor to God. Is that a true statement? The more you live out what God's called you to live, the more the world pushes against you. It says, for the world hates you because you are not of this world. It would have loved you if you were of this world. But as we live countercultural to the world, the world is going to push back against us. And there are dangers that come from that journey as well. And you might be thinking, Simon, this is the most unencouraging message I've heard in a really long time. What, what am I supposed to do with that? Well, there is encouragement. And there is comfort. And I want to show you that there is confidence that we can draw as followers of Christ in this passage. And I want to talk about some mountains again. See, there was a mountain Abraham took his son to. Abraham took his son to a mountain where he was going to go, and God said, go and sacrifice your son, your only son. He had been promised there's going to be a great nation that comes from you. He's like, I'm old. This ain't going to happen. He's got the one kid. He's like, if I get rid of him, like, I don't think the promise is going to work, God. He says, I want to know if you truly love me and love me more above all things. So he went to that mountain. He was willing to do that, and God said, no. But then in that moment, they still went up to the mountain to worship. So what did God provide? A ram. A substitution so they could come and worship the God. This mountain's called Mount Moriah. See, that same mountain actually is where a temple was going to be made, where the Israelites, the men and the women, would come from all over to have their sins forgiven at different times and for the sins of the people throughout the year. And that was a part of the sacrificial system showing us that there is a penalty for being in sin and rebellion against God and that there must be life poured out for the wages of sin is death, right? So we know that that's what it says. The sacrificial system pointed to that very idea. And so what you found is you would come and you would get animals and they would become a substitute for you that you would confess your sins upon that animal and that animal would be slain and that blood would be let out and then your sins would be forgiven. There's a sacrificial system. And that took place on a mountain called Mount Moriah. And there was a man. His name was Jesus. And he left heaven. He came to earth and he lived the life that we could not live. He worshiped God perfectly at every point in his life. That he came and showed us who God was. That as he lived that perfect life, that he would go to a cross. That he would die in our place. That he would take the sins that we've committed, past, present, and future, put them on himself, and become a substitute for us, though we earned and deserved that wrath. He took our place so we could have relationship with God. He did that in a place called Golgotha known as the, the, the Calvary, right? Also known as Mount Moriah. See, I talk to people all the time like, oh, the Bible's so disconnected. Oh, no, it's not. It started with one man and his family. It went to a nation, and then it went to the world. Do you see the progression of what God is showing about what he is doing and how he is going to save the world? So you may say, Simon, so what does that mean? Where does my help come from? Your eyes look up to the hill, the hill that Jesus died on for our confidence, for our hope, and for our help. That's where our help comes from. It comes from Christ and Christ alone. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, your feet shall not be moved. You will not stumble. 
Our Savior watches over us night and day without sleep. He protects us from the shelter. He shelters us from the danger. He gives us the mental fortitude to endure this life, though it may seem hopeless at times. He keeps us from evil by destroying sin and death and its effects, and he doesn't let us go into physical and spiritual death anymore. Jesus gives us life, and we are with him forever. The Israelites would have said this in Deuteronomy 31.6 and thinking about this idea. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And it is very similar to a promise that was made as well. Matthew 28.18-20, this time coming from Jesus' own mouth. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, here's the promise, I am with you always till the end of age. That he will not leave you, he will not forsake you. He took all that on himself. I don't know where you are. I don't know how you are struggling in life currently, but you can take confidence knowing that this is the God who is with you, the one who has done so much to show who he is, that he is faithful and just to do the things that he said he's going to do. And he says, I'm with you always, that he is with you always. That's who we worship. That is where our confidence comes from. And anyone that would call on the name of Jesus for help would be saved. That's, that's what we're talking. This is, this, is, this is the hope. This is the confidence. This is the joy that we have as believers. This is not it. He will carry you through whatever you're going through. And today might be a day where you just need to remember that. You just need to be encouraged to know that, that God loves you so much. That he is taking you through this journey of life as you go to try and worship him in all the areas of your life. And we make mistakes and we struggle and we stumble long ways, but God does not stumble and God does not tarry for his people. Maybe for you, it's, you, maybe you are hopeless. Maybe this is the first time you've heard a message like this of who Jesus Christ is. And I would say this, there is help. And he is the helper who does it for all. For if you call on his name, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and make you a new creation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this message. It's, it's been so helpful to me. It's been so encouraging to me and challenging to me at the same time. Lord, I ask that as our men and women are sitting here this morning, as we get ready to go into a time of communion, that they would be dwelling upon who you are. Maybe they need to evaluate where they are in their walk where they are with their confidence, where they are in the difficulties of this life. That as they hear about who you are, that would give them the confidence to continue forward on the journey. Lord, just like I would hike towards that mountain with the end goal and result that you are the goal. The goal is to be with you continually forever, to worship you, Jesus, but knowing that you walk with us, that we're not alone. Lord, for those who don't know you, ask that they would just cry out to you for the first time, that you would open their eyes and their heart to know who you truly are, and they would confess you as Lord and Savior. Lord, maybe 
don't know, maybe, maybe just doing a 15-day study is what they need right now. And I ask that that would be encouraging to them. You would use that in whatever way you can. And you would touch them in a way where they would actually have strength in these moments where the world would probably think that there's weakness. I love you. Pray all these things in your glorious name. Amen.